Welcome to the Thriving Wellness Podcast, where we encourage and empower everyone to live their lives up to their true potential and share valuable conversations that are translated into action steps for the lifestyle that makes you thrive. Here are your hosts, Ryan and AJ. Hey folks, welcome back to the Thriving Wellness Podcast. This is Ryan and I'm super excited for the guest and the topic of today's show because it's something incredibly important for your overall health and quality of life. And there's just so much confusion and, and misinformation about this. And I'm talking about light, something that's often overlooked because we live in a society today where the average person spends over 93% of their day indoors, at least based on the latest statistical estimate I read. And this really goes against our evolutionary biology and the way we were designed to live. This lack of sensible sun exposure and the overwhelming amount of artificial junk light is a huge component to why rates of chronic disease have been skyrocketing and why so many people are struggling with low energy, brain fog, depression, anxiety, you name it. All of these health issues comes down to our circadian rhythm and this lack of living in living living in a, a way that's we're designed to and that really is uh, in conjunction with nature. So I have on the show with me today, Matt Maruka, who's done extensive research into this topic of light. Matt is the founder of Raw Optics, and he really set out with this company to make the world's finest blue light blocking glasses, which we'll talk about more later. He also created the Light Diet, which is the only diet today that directly addresses the root of the modern chronic disease epidemic, mitochondrial dysfunction, and his own story after suffering from poor health and chronic fatigue uh, due to technology overuse and living an indoor lifestyle, he really came to a lot of these conclusions through research and and you know he's only 20 years old but he travels the world and he studies and teaching he's studying and teaching about the relevance of light to human health. So so Matt, welcome to the show, man. How's it going? <laughs> Can you start by explaining to the audience what the light diet is for people who haven't heard of this? Absolutely. The light diet is, is a diet that I came up with, which focuses on optimizing the engines in our cell, which power our biology and all of our biologic functions, rather than focusing on just the gas that's going into the engines. And the analogy, analogy that I like to give people about the light diet is that of a group of guys discussing discussing cars, automobiles. And the people talking about food diets would be like a group of guys discussing, for example, improving the speed of their cars by focusing on their gas, for example. So someone says, oh, I'm using 85 gas. I'm using 89. I'm using 87. Oh, I'm, someone comes in and they say, I'm using 95, 93. Like, oh, you know, I've got the best gas, so I'm going to have the fastest car and blah, blah, blah. And maybe to a certain extent, yes, having better gas is going to improve the way that the engine can run. But I think it becomes very clear in the discussion that something's missing. What's missing is the discussion about the car itself, in particular, the engines that are processing the gas that's going into the cars. You see, clearly, if you're not discussing the engines, the, the, the discussion about speed of cars becomes essentially irrelevant or a function of cars. It becomes essentially irrelevant. However, we have this whole world today where everyone's focused in discussing the gas that they're putting into our cellular engines, into our bodies, which are our cars, without ever getting into a discussion about our engines, which process and utilize our fuel 
and determine how effectively it can be utilized. So the light diet is a diet that I came up with out of personal necessity and experience in order to focus on fixing and improving the function of my cellular engines rather than just on trying to improve the gas alone. And it's clear that, for example, the difference between a, let's say, Nissan and a McLaren is going to have a, a significantly greater impact on how far, how far and how fast you're able to go compared to the difference between having 87 and 93 gas within any specific model of a car. That's, that's basically what the light diet is. I love that analogy. That's a good overview where you're really addressing the engines rather than the fuel source. And so could you give us a little bit more in terms of the actual overview? So with the light diet, a few of the key components to it and some of the logistics of what you suggest people do. Absolutely. So the engines in our cells are called mitochondria. Are you familiar with mitochondria? Oh, absolutely. Great. So mitochondria are little previously bacteria that made an alliance with another type of primordial organism called archaea and basically came together to form what we could call a supercell, which is composed of two distinct types of organisms. This cell when the, the mitochondria, these engines, decided to make this alliance, they forfeited their genes and their independence to their host, sort of like slaves to a master. And the master, the host of the cell, would take care of their genes and expressing all of those genes, taking care of obtaining nutrients, the fuel, and carrying out structure and function for the most part. That's what the, you could say the master decided to do or the host. And then what these mitochondria would do is they basically became, you could say, servants, but they became servants who wanted to be servants because no longer would they have to be concerned about where their fuel is coming from or taking care of, of the tremendous responsibility of maintaining and expressing an entire genome as a single unit which is responsible for all of its functions, which until this point in evolution, this what they call endosymbiosis, all bacteria and archaea were responsible for doing. Again, generating their own energy and maintaining their entire genome and everything. With this alliance that, that, was, that occurred with mitochondria and, in, well, what were previously called oxidative cyanobacteria, which are now called mitochondria, and then archaeobacteria, this alliance allowed, again, one host to take care of certain aspects of things. And then dozens and dozens of, you could say, subordinate cells to take care of other aspects of things, which are primarily energy generation as opposed to the structure and function. And because they no longer had to maintain an entire genome and all, use all the energy required to do this, they were able to do just the task of generating energy, which saved a tremendous amount of energy per organism that allowed us to basically become more and more complex. So we've been talking about mitochondria, Matt, and could you give us some lifestyle habits and different uh, actionable steps that people can take in their day-to-day -to, -day to really enhance the health and the function of their mitochondria? Absolutely. It's really straightforward. One of the most important things for the mitochondria is sleep because when we sleep, a key hormone that people know called melatonin is basically 
repairing our cells, repairing damage, repairing in particular our engines, these mitochondria, and making them better. That's one of the most important factors of sleep and why every study done on sleep shows that it has tremendous benefits for health. And when sleep is damaged or disrupted, we have serious issues that are associated with this across the board. So the easiest ways to improve sleep are one in the morning and begin to get morning sunlight exposure because what morning sunlight exposure does is it basically entrains our body's circadian rhythm, our biologic clock. It, sim it signals for the production of key hormones like melatonin, um, like dopamine, serotonin, and so on. And then the other side of the coin, besides getting early morning sunlight exposure for even just, for example, 30 minutes to an hour, just going outside, having your coffee outside, taking a walk, whatever it may be. The other side of the coin is getting darkness at night. So basically when the sun goes down, we want to not be exposed to bright light in general. In particular, we don't want to be exposed to blue light frequencies because blue light frequencies, which are a component of our screen devices, our light bulbs, and the sun as well, these are the, the frequencies that our eye specifically looks for to know whether it's day or night. We don't use all light. We just use these specific frequencies. So this is the reason I started a company making blue light blocking glasses because they block just the blue light frequencies that disrupt our rhythm and our natural allow us to basically get more prepared for sleep and for our brain to know when it's time to sleep so that when we go to bed, it's not like we've just been exposed to light up until that final moment when we close our eyes. No, we've actually had the natural two to three, three to four hours of darkness that allows our sleep to really be optimized. So those are the two biggest things, lots of early morning sunlight exposure, and then avoiding artificial light at night or mitigating it with blue light blocking glasses and blue light blocking software like Iris for computer. That's I-R-I-S. Um, you can get Flux, F.Lux for the computer, also pretty good, but Iris is the best. Um, you can get a hack on your phone. You can Google Matt Maruka, how to make your iPhone red. I have a video on YouTube that shows this very, very clearly. How to set this hack up will block blue light from the phone. These are just some of the things that people can do to start to optimize the sleep. And for example, another good thing is like surfing or going outside in the middle of the day when the sun is pretty strong or, you know, in the late morning, for example, and getting this natural light exposure on the eyes and the skin. This in particular if you spend some time out in, when the sun is a bit strong, again, being careful not to burn, which is something we could talk about because that's not good, then you'll often find that you'll go to sleep that night feeling really just warmed and toasted, but in, in a good way, not like you're sunburned because we want to avoid that again. But that means that the body has gotten a good dose of ultraviolet light which allows us to create a lot of melatonin because the molecule that melatonin comes from, tryptophan, something we eat in our diet, like you know, from proteins that we consume, we need ultraviolet light to break that molecule tryptophan apart so that then it can be catalyzed into the subsequent molecules, one being serotonin and then being melatonin. So this really helps getting in their studies. Actually, actually was just reading one this morning, eating a breakfast high in tryptophan and then getting light exposure throughout the day had a tremendous increase in melatonin levels, evening melatonin levels in the subjects. 
So it's like we make it in the day with the, the power of the sun, but then we secrete it only when there's an absence of light in the evening. And that's really how how it comes together. Yeah, that's huge because a lot of people don't realize that the importance of sun exposure to really get that melatonin uh, production going and they associate it just with the evening hours, but it's really, it starts at the beginning of the day. Like you said, one question I get often, Matt, I want to run by you is I've been uh, recommending people do get this morning light, go out as close to the sunrise as you can, no sunglasses. And when it's really cloudy and overcast, do you still reap all of those same benefits? Yes, absolutely. It's not it's not maybe going to feel as warming and strong as it will when it's a clear day, because of course, a huge amount of the light, the infrared range in particular, which makes us feel warm is filtered out by the clouds, but the, the effects are all still there. So for example, on a cloudy day, I might not be as inclined to go down to the, to the ocean side or whatever, but I will still go out, maybe dip my feet in the water, maybe get in the water anyway, or just open up all my windows and let the light hit hit my eyes while I'm working, which is what I did today. Yeah, that's perfect. And similar setup I have where I do most of my work where I'm getting natural light that's not being blocked by window glass and not being impaired in any way, which really helps with productivity and energy I found. Another thing I was going to uh, ask you about when it comes to sensible sun exposure, something I've been recommending to people for years now, is what are some strategies that you have to reap the benefits of the sun during the middle of the day without getting sunburns because obviously burns are bad for our skin. So basically the way that you want to get sensible sun exposure without getting burned is to listen to your body. But the thing is that we have a big issue where we've switched to a totally indoor like lifestyle, like the statistic that you brought up in the beginning of the call, the average American is spending 93% of our time indoors. So for example, if someone's body is totally deficient in sunlight, you're going to go out and then your body's actually going to want to stay in the sun a lot more. But the issue is that because the skin isn't acclimated to the sun, the skin's going to burn while the body is begging for more light. Now, again, if someone had lived outside their whole life, this wouldn't be as much of an issue. But now that you go outside and your skin is, is not functioning properly, just like the rest of the organs might not be functioning properly due to a toxic lifestyle, poor sleep, chronic circadian disruption, due to artificial light at night and absence of sunlight exposure every morning, we're going to have a serious issue essentially. So what I recommend is that people who haven't been doing uh, getting sunlight exposure for a long time, who have been living this indoor lifestyle, I recommend slowly building up your exposure. Now, the cool thing is that morning sun exposure from you know the first few hours after the sun rises, again, depending where you are in the summer, it's going to be a lot stronger winter, it's going to be a lot weaker. So in the winter, even someone who's really pale could probably spend a large number of hours out in the sun without almost any problem. Because again, it's very weak. And, and if it's cloudy, it's depending, it's even weaker, but there's still UV light coming through. So you want to be careful if it's cloudy. But basically in the summer, you know, the first two hours might be fairly weak, but then any later, it's going to get quite strong, quite fast. So, and if you're in the tropics, even the, after the first 30 minutes to an hour, the sun's quite strong. So basically you're going to have to tailor this to where you are and you can look at websites like DMinder or an app called DMinder to look at the UV index. But essentially, you just want to build up your exposure. Let's say you, if you haven't been getting any sun, go out 10 minutes 
and just let your skin get a little bit pink, which doesn't mean you're burnt. That just means some blood's coming up to the surface to try to absorb sunlight, essentially. And so it's called dermal pooling. It's, it's a natural mechanism we have to absorb more light because our body really wants it actually in our bloodstream. It charges up a lot of processes, including the function of our engines, our mitochondria. So 10 minutes, then get in the shade. Then do 10 more minutes the next day. And again, just don't, just don't let your, your skin burn. And then just keep building this up. And eventually, you'll be able to build up a 10. And obviously, of course, best to start this in the springtime. So that by the time it's stronger in the summer, you can stay out for a couple hours. And this is even how the heliotherapists who are uh, administering healthy doses of sunlight to help cure all kinds of conditions in the early 1900s, they were doing it this way, building up 5, 10 minutes per day until someone would have a nice 10. And then they would keep, you know, let them be out on two, three hours divided by their uh, front and by their back. And then there's some other factors that are really important. You know, if you're very pale and your skin is, is sickly and pale and it hasn't been working well, you might not be able to just build up. You might burn no matter what. And that, this was how I was actually, because I had spent so little time outdoors and my body was so sick. Some of the other things that you need to do to be, you know, optimally that one would need to do to make this work is to start following a normal natural circadian rhythm so that the skin cells, the cell membranes, everything can regenerate properly while you sleep. Because again, your body is completely out of whack on the circadian rhythm. You're under bright light late at night all the time. You're never getting up early in the morning. The brain is going to be completely out of whack and never know whether it's day or night and not be prepared. And then if you go in the sun, particularly in the middle of the day, it's going to be like a shock. And the cells are just going to basically react negatively to that. So you want to get the circadian rhythm right by going to sleep early and waking up early, ideally naturally or with a soft alarm clock, something calming in the, in the beginning to, to get into this. You want to build up that sun exposure like we've discussed a little bit at a time for the midday exposure when you have to be more careful. And you don't need too much midday sun to build up healthy vitamin D levels. Even 30 minutes on a regular basis once you get up to it is, is highly beneficial. Um, you know, so there's that eating lots of seafood is really important and healthy seafood, you know, lower down on the food chain in particular, if you're starting out on this, cause unless you're really healthy, you might not be able to detox mercury very well. So like tuna fish, swordfish higher on the food chain, those can be avoided early on in the process for anyone who's not particularly healthy or, or, you know, uh, I would say most of us are, are we're loaded with toxins and we're not very good at detoxing. So it's a good rule of thumb to start with lower fish down on the food chain, like wild caught salmon, uh, trout, mackerel, sardines, anchovies. Um, just, you know, you can Google which fish are safe for pregnant women and which ones aren't. And that'll give a good read and things like shellfish are the highest in nutrients, highest in DHA. So you're getting the circadian rhythm tuned up. You're building up your solar exposure. You're getting DHA, uh, which is an omega-3 from the seafood that you're eating. And that's going into the eyes and the skin, which allows our cell membranes to absorb light better, basically. It's almost like natural sunscreen, but it actually allows us to utilize the light, not just to block it out. And then one other key thing is two other things, actually, drinking good quality water. So not from a city uh, municipal source, but from spring water, glass bottles, ideally, or just like a reusable big five gallon jug you can get at the grocery store or go fill up at a spring yourself if you live up in the mountains or something or the Pacific Northwest. And then also using cold exposure. So like, for example, Wim Hof method, people know about this Iceman Wim Hof, who's a daredevil and helping people reverse diseases just with cold exposure and breathing techniques. 
Um, people can use cold exposure, whether it's in just a river, a lake, a stream, an ocean, even if it's not freezing cold, even if it's just a little cool, you can get in the water and then lay in the sun and it's going to cool the skin so that the skin isn't, isn't burning basically, isn't getting too hot. So you can cool off, get in the sun, get in the water a bit more, get in the sun. And that will help to increase the ability and, and uh, efficiency with which, with which one can build up this, what we call a solar callus, basically a uh, callus like you get from walking barefoot on your feet, but on your skin from the sun. It's a solar callus. Fantastic recommendations. And so the, the bottom line is you don't want to just go out and lay in the sun, especially if you are located close to the equator or it's summertime and just get burnt to a crisp. Because even if you have sunscreen on, that's doing severe damage to your skin. And sunscreen so, makes it worse. Yeah. So can you go, I was, that was going to be my next question. Can you talk about why people would want to avoid uh, particularly conventional sunscreens that are loaded with toxic chemicals, but uh, how even a good quality sunscreen can block some of these benefits. Yeah, it's just not a good idea. So the thing is, our skin is actually sunscreen. Our skin is natural sunscreen that evolved for billions of years to allow in exactly how much light we need to function properly. And the only reason it doesn't work effectively now is the reasons we discussed. We've stopped consuming Health, you know, healthy diet. We're consuming a diet laden with omega six fatty acids that are highly refined, that make up you know some of our cell membranes, and then uh, you know they're huge components in our cells. And then we get in the sun, and they get damaged, and that leads to the formation of you know really harmful free radicals and and this kind of thing that does lead to cancer. So it's more our diet and our indoor lifestyle that's rendered our natural sunscreen less effective. Um, so if we just put on a bunch of chemical sunscreens, first of all, all that stuff is actually absorbing into our bloodstream. And these are really toxic, nasty chemicals. People can just even do a little Google searching on this. It's not even that hard to find. But uh, some of the chemicals in sunscreen, when they are hit by light, they also generate huge amounts of these free radical chemicals that are highly oxidative and toxic for our cells and our body, basically. And so they lead to the formation of disease and even cancer, which is pretty insane because the whole idea of them is to prevent, you know, UV light, which is supposedly causes skin cancer, which also isn't true. Um, it's, it's not UV light that's causing skin cancer. It's, it's basically our toxic indoor lifestyle that's rendered our natural systems not functional. And then we can cause skin cancer for ourselves. Um, so yeah, we don't want to be using sunscreen and in particular, we don't want to use sunglasses or contact lenses. And if someone needs, uh, lenses to see corrective lenses, then it's best to wear glasses and take them off when we're outdoors. And the reason for this is that the eye is actually the main surface by which we assimilate light into our bloodstream, which carries out a lot of the key functions, um, like improving our mitochondrial function. Also the stimulus of light going through our eye tunes a lot of our hormonal systems, a lot of key processes in our body. And so when we block out that light, and more importantly, not just we're not just reducing it with sunglasses, but we're distorting the spectrum. We're cutting out all of the ultraviolet and in allowing through the majority of the color spectrum. And this creates complete chaos in the mind, in the brain, because all of these signals are designed to be coming in together to, and all of our horm hormonal secretions throughout the day, lots of 
key functions with our circadian rhythm and so on. And also something as simple as the contraction of the eye to adjust to the light levels coming in are signaled by having all of the components of the light spectrum there, the full spectrum it's called. So when we block out, we cut out just the UV or certain sunglasses cut out other frequencies. And that's why they have these different cool looking colors, red, green, blue, pink, whatever. This has tremendous effects on all of the systems in our body, which are governed by light all of which aren't even fully understood. So it's, it's like a really bad idea. I mean, there's so much research, so many books, so much literature on how just light passing through the eye, different colors can tremendously change mood, function of different hormones, different systems, neurotransmitters and everything. And so just putting on a lens just because it looks cool, like sunglass lens, uh, to, to make it easier on the eyes is absurd. I actually can vouch. I used to be so sensitive to light when I would walk out in the middle of the summer. I had to squint so much just to be able to, you know, it hurt. It literally hurt and to, to, just to be outside in the middle of the strong sun in the summer. And now it's not even a question for me. Like I can be in Mexico. I can be anywhere in the strong sun and it, it doesn't bother me very much at all. Even in the summer in Mexico, it's really strong light down there. And it's clear that just by getting morning sunlight and re-entraining my circadian rhythm so that my body can be adapted to the light levels, that's helped tremendously. Again, eating more DHA, more seafood, I believe that's been a key part, allowing my body to naturally assimilate the light better. And again, just getting that light exposure, building up basically the resilience of my eye and my skin so that I can tolerate this. And my vision's actually improved since I started this. My vision was never, I never needed corrective lenses to see, thankfully. But before I started these protocols, I did notice that I, my vision was sort of getting a little bit shaky. Some of my siblings actually wear glasses. And so I could have fallen in that category. But just from the, for example, morning sun gazing has been known even, even before this research was done by, you know, it was known by sort of ancient traditions like Ayurveda to be very healthy for the eyes. And the research is basically starting to support these ancient conclusions. It's very fascinating. So yeah, uh, you don't want to be wearing, we don't want to be wearing these chemical sunscreens because they're more harmful than they're beneficial. And we have natural mechanisms. Just put on a t-shirt, put on a hat uh, when you get too much light or just go in the shade. And that's basically, basically the deal. Same with sunglasses and contacts. Forget about it. Those also reduce the amount of oxygen that the cornea is able to utilize because the cornea is the only tissue in the body that doesn't get oxygen from blood supply. It gets it directly from the air. Cornea breathes, basically. And so when we put on these contact lenses, they actually reduce the amount of light going to, to, the, uh, to the eye or to the cornea. And so this mitochondrial-rich tissue that has tons of engines that burn oxygen for fuel doesn't isn't going to be able to function well and it's going to lead to a rapid decline in vision which is what we often see you know people who wear contacts need stronger prescriptions super fast constantly so it's it's yeah this is the, the key for people yeah i love that you touched on the issue of sunglasses because i have a similar story as you is where i would wear sunglasses on a consistent basis and when i tried not to my eyes were so sensitive to the sun. It was really challenging. But over time, you actually develop a tolerance. And I haven't worn sunglasses in years because of all the kind of research and science you just brought up of the benefits of getting sunlight directly into your eyes, especially in the morning time. And I love that you touched on the sunscreen as well. What are your thoughts, though? Let's say someone is out on the water or somewhere, because I agree with you in that 
if you can find shade or put on a long sleeve shirt and a hat, that's the best way to limit your sun exposure after you've had enough and you're on the verge of getting a sunburn. But what if you're out surfing or you're out diving, or you're in a position where your face is going to be exposed no matter what, pretty much. Do you have any mineral-based uh, non-toxic sunscreens you'd suggest just to put on your nose and forehead so they don't get burned if you're out there for hours on end? Yeah. So over over uh, like time, definitely, I think we can build up a bit more resilience and then also be able to uh, be not burning on the nose and everywhere else. Like I have a friend who moved down from Europe to the Canary Islands, which are sort of the same latitude as Florida. And at first, his nose would burn over and over. But eventually, he got it to a point where it was healthily built up. To be honest, I've had the same issue when I'll, I'll go from like northerly areas, like where I'm from, Philadelphia, or you know something something like that, down to Mexico rapidly, and just burn my nose, which is not good. And so I got to be more careful. So what I, I use a, a sunscreen that's really popular in surf shops now called Manda. It's all organic, M A N D A is that it's non-nano zinc oxide. Non-nano meaning it's not made of like tiny chemicals that absorb into the skin. And so it's one of those sunscreens that I'm sure you know as a surfer that just looks white, just like the lifeguard knows, you know, that they have in movies and stuff. So it just, it doesn't absorb, but that's the good thing. It just, uh, you could just put a little coating on the nose and maybe under the eyes, the places that are most prone to be burnt. And that's pretty much the best. And besides that, you know, yeah, some people when they surf, I've, I've met some people who will just wear like a shirt or like a rash guard or a hat, uh, you know, that straps on a little tight so that it doesn't, you don't lose it. And I think those are all great ways. If you're, again, this is primarily for someone who has light skin, like someone with um, European descent, because people with uh, darker skin have mel uh, melanin. Again, that's another thing is this, this discussion often lacks context. Again, some of the articles I've been reading today, it's really profound, like the American Academy of uh, dermatology and whatnot, they make these recommendations on sun exposure, healthy, safe sun exposure. They never even include any context regarding skin tone. And the reason why is because they're concerned about, you know, being accused of racism or something like this. But in reality, it's, it's just a simple fact of nature. Some people have more melanin in their skin. It doesn't have anything to do with, you know, obviously the, the, quality of person or anything like that, that's people just automatically bring into these conversations like identity politics or something like that. No, it's just literally some people, you know, like even within Europe, some people have darker skin, some people have lighter skin, Italians versus Norwegians, uh, like Moroccans versus Spanish people, you know, Asians versus Central and South American people. It's just different skin tones have more or less melanin based on the sunlight they evolved in to protect themselves. So anyway, someone with darker skin, more melanin, they can handle a lot more sun. And in fact, it takes the darkest skin types 10 times as long to make the same amount of vitamin D um, because, or you could even say they have 10 times as much sun protection as someone from, from Northern Europe because of uh, their, their melanin content in their skin, which is great if we live in nature like we're designed to, because if you have that much sun protection, you can be out spending more time in the sun, hunting, foraging, whatever, before having to get in the shade or before overheating as much um, compared to someone like, you know, white with white skin from Northern Europe, we wouldn't be able to survive in Africa nearly as long. We'd be super hot and we would have to get in the shade. Otherwise we'd be getting fried. So yeah, so there's also got to be the context, but yeah, there's the Monda sun cream that people can use if they, if, you know, you can put on a shirt, put on a hat. That's the best, and 
also just build again, build up your exposure bit by bit. And you might actually find that you're able, even if you're Northern European descent, you can build a strong tan and, and be able to handle that exposure. Yeah. And I loved how you touched on how nutrition can really act as internal sunscreen and getting the right types of healthy fats, lots of omega-3, DHA and EPA fats, and even healthy, high quality saturated fats can really help to naturally protect your skin. And there's a few other nutrients I always suggest to people, one of which being uh, astaxanthin, which is found in wild caught salmon, but you could actually take a natural astaxanthin supplement before going out, maybe an hour before you go out and get exposure. And that's going to really help protect from any potential DNA damage. It's going to improve your body's or your skin's tolerance to the sun. And there's one other supplement, which isn't known as well as astaxanthin uh, called pycnogenol. It's a class of OPCs. And that's another one that could really work if you were to take it. It's just another natural substance that helps protect our bodies uh, from the sun. So you don't have to use sunscreen if you're going to be going out and you have pale skin. And then just like Matt's been saying, build up your tolerance slowly but surely is the, the real surefire way to, to enhance that. Yeah, totally. I'm skeptical of these supplements. I can't condone or confirm them just because I haven't done my research on them. But again, they totally could work. You know, I have heard a particular astaxanthin. Um, so yeah, I would just recommend get it from the a whole foods source. From my experience, is always ideal. But yeah, people experiment, see what works for you, do your own research as well, and and yeah. Awesome, man. Well, so we've really touched on the benefits of sun, sun exposure, how to get sensible sun exposure so you're not getting you know, burnt to a crisp. Now, moving on into the kind of evening hours, you touched on this before, how it's important to minimize blue light, uh, particularly after the sun has gone down because of how it disrupts our circadian rhythm. Can you talk a little bit more about that and different strategies? You mentioned flux and a couple of different applications you could download onto your devices. Um, and then obviously the blue light blocking glasses can be helpful for overhead artificial lights. Yeah, absolutely. So, well, when the sun goes down, that decrease in blue light is telling the brain, basically it's time to go to sleep. And when we don't have the light present anymore on our eyes and on our skin, that actually, which is actually powering a lot of our biology and biochemistry, then it, it, it's harmful to continue to be awake a long time after that light's gone. That's something that we don't often consider. I hardly, I never thought of it once before learning about this stuff, but just being awake many hours when the sun isn't present to power that wakefulness in an animal that's diurnal, not nocturnal, diurnal meaning the opposite of nocturnal, awake during the day. This is harmful. So just to give some context for people, like this is one of the reasons it's really important when the sun goes down, get to sleep shortly. Like the sun sets here around 7.30. I'm looking to go to bed shortly thereafter that. More of an experiment, but I've been feeling great since doing this. So um, really key is, is get to sleep early enough that you're going to wake up naturally before sunrise. Now, for people who have, for you know everyone, who's been living an indoor lifestyle and hasn't been um, doing these things, charging up with the sun, you know, improving the mitochondria and, and feeling charged pretty much every day and whatnot. This isn't going to happen overnight. Your body might feel like you need tons of hours of sleep in order to just feel decent. But as health improves, and I, f I find this change continually uh, occurring in myself as I get better and better, 
I find that I don't need as many hours of sleep. And if I do get into a, you know, a, a period where I'm not doing things quite as well as I'd like to be for my health, then I'll notice I might need some extra sleep just to feel uh, rejuvenated. You know, I might be, my body might be craving to sleep in. But for example, if someone, if you feel that you really need to sleep in every day till eight or nine or 10 in the morning, that's really a bad sign. It means there's lots of circadian disruption. Your body's really trying to detox, repair and whatnot. And it's having lots of trouble. So the best hack, one of the keys of the light diet is just really getting to sleep early, like prioritizing sleep and regeneration and relaxation for yourself. And that also is awesome. You're going to wake up early because the most peaceful hours of the day are the hours before the sun rises from my experience, like four, five, six a.m. Of course, this is a time when almost no one's awake or alive, but this is a huge hack we can do. Um, so of course, there's a caveat there people are going to want to naturally know about, which is, you know, well, what about eating dinner and what about going out with friends and all this stuff? And I would just say, from my experience, maybe in a, in a healing process, it's best to minimize, you know, staying up late and just hang out with people, do all that stuff during the daytime, ideally, um, you know, and, and on a regular basis, maybe two times per week, like the weekend, for example, the body can handle if we're healthy. Now, if, if one's really sick, this is different. And if you really want to get better, you got to be careful and, and really put yourself first. But if someone's healthy two nights a week, stay, you know, you can stay up a little bit later. Again, it's really smart. This is uh, something you mentioned, Ryan, wearing blue blocking glasses. Because even if you stay up late, you're still protecting the mechanisms in the body that run these daily hormonal fluctuations, the melatonin cycle, the cortisol cycle, the sleep cycle. So wearing blue light blocking glasses when you're out late with your friends, of course, is not that socially common yet, but it will be within a couple of years. So don't worry about that. Just do your thing. If you're into this, yeah, want to, you know, optimize your health, go for it. So, so these are some considerations to really, to really know. And, and the really important stuff first, you know, getting to sleep early, you can't hack that. You really just can't. And getting up before sunrise, you can't hack that either. But, you know, um, that's the optimal. And then the second best option is if you're going to continue to stay up later, definitely block blue light every way possible and generally all light. So go for darkness. What I use is a red headlamp. So literally on Amazon, Google red headlamp, red light headlamp, red light torch. And you'll find these camping heads, headlamps that people wear when they're camping or hiking to see at night. And then usually they always have a red light function so that your night vision isn't compromised. Um, because that's, that's how it works. You know, when you're stargazing, you're out, the red light doesn't affect your night vision. Whereas if you turn on those bright white lights, it will, you'll turn it off and you won't be able to see anything. So I use this to see around my house. I, uh, everywhere I go at night, basically reading, writing. But again, what I'm doing now is attempting to almost not use any light after dark. And to me, that's, that's sort of the most optimal. That's when I find my sleep is the best. So red headlamp is awesome. Um, you can buy red light bulbs for your house. To me, it's just a hassle. I, I prefer, again, getting to sleep early is the way of the game. It's the way to go. So just get this little red headlamp. You'll be able to use it as a handheld flashlight, put it on your head. It's super convenient. And then just go lights out after the sun goes down. And for people who actually implement this, you're not going to want to use light after dark in your house. If you're, I never do. I don't turn on any lights in, in where I'm staying ever. I, I actually mostly in Airbnbs, you know, traveling, working on my business, staying in different spots. But wherever I go, I almost never use the lights at all because in the day I'm using the natural light and at night I'm using my little red headlamp or no lights. Candles are also dandy. You know, if you have a family and kids and whatnot, yeah, candles are candles are the best. 
using some orange or red bulbs from Amazon, great too. Uh, old school Thomas Edison incandescent bulbs. They look the most normal. So if you're really concerned about what your friends think about you or someone in your house thinks about you, swap all the bulbs out to these relaxing dim Edison incandescent bulbs. A lot of designers and restaurants use them. They're super nice. They have this cool filament you can see and they're super warm, which means they have less blue light. They don't disrupt your circadian rhythm and they're dim. So they're great. Um, yeah. So those are some of the hacks. Blue light blocking glasses from the moment the sun goes down basically is key because then your brain knows, okay, no more blue light stimulating the system. Time to start cranking out the melatonin. And that not only allows you to maintain that daily circadian rhythm, but it allows to maintain a seasonal rhythm as well because the, the length of the days uh, fluctuates throughout the different seasons. And so that affects, for example, our fertility and so on and so on. So these are some key considerations and and those are the places where I would recommend that most people start. You know, if you can also avoid lights coming into your place where you sleep at night, that's huge because then you can have the the space open, the windows like uh, open, let's say, and, and then let the light wake you up in the morning if you're just getting into this and that stimulus helps out. So that's, that's a really good hack. But if it's super bright where you're, where you're staying, there's tons of artificial street lights and whatnot cities. I would just use blackout blinds. Uh, if you can get the ones that go with a timer that open themselves up uh, just before first light in the morning. So you can have that light wake you up. That's huge. Otherwise in the beginning, if you're really getting into this, you might want to just, you know, if, if there's lots of lights around you at night, you might want to block them out with the blackout blinds. So you're sleeping in a dark space. That is really important. And then set a really relaxing, soothing alarm early in the morning so that if you don't wake up naturally because you have stayed up past nine or 10 in the evening, then you'll have that soothing alarm to wake you up. You could just in a meditative state, open up those blackout blinds, lay down in your bed and let that light wake you up. You know, it's, it's not, you definitely want to get your circadian rhythm and train. So I would recommend people use a soothing alarm to wake up for sunrise, but way preferable to that is to just start naturally to go to sleep earlier and then naturally wake up earlier as well with that. Again, if you, for example, go to bed around eight or nine, which is absurdly early for most people, but I think it's a really one of the best things we can do for our health. Then for example, eight hours of sleep from eight, that's 4 a.m. Eight hours of sleep from nine, that's 5 a.m. That's a lot of sleep. That's really good. You know, most people will naturally start waking up early if you do that. So these are some of the key considerations. I found the same to be true. Really timing your sleep and wake cycles to be as close to the sunrise and sunset as possible is ideal. And in the summertime, it's fairly feasible because we have these really long days. Obviously, in the winter, depending on where you're located, it does get dark much earlier. So implementing some of the recommendations Matt made in terms of using red headlamps or blue light blocking glasses and really minimizing your you know, exposure to blue light is a good strategy to keep your circadian rhythm on point because it is hard to get to bed that early. A lot of people do have other obligations that take place after 8 p.m. or 9 p.m. And that's sometimes the only time of day they have to spend with their significant other or hang out with friends or even just go, you know, run some errands and get, get a few things done. Of course. Totally. So. And, and for me, it's just like, of course, you know, I'm, I'm not here to, uh, you know, my, my job is to share what I've learned, not to make people uncomfortable about their lifestyle. But if people get uncomfortable, I can't control, you know, other people's reactions to this information. But basically, the key thing to know is that huge amount of our, of our society is very, very sick. 
and these disease rates are increasing. And if we're not doing stuff that's different markedly from what everyone else is doing, we're sort of going down the same path statistically. And for example, people just, I just want people to know that, you know, we're making, there's a trade-off that's occurring when you're deciding to stay up consistently past 9 PM, 10 PM. Uh, that's a big trade-off for your health. So again, people can make that, of course, it's, it's, it's everyone's life to live themselves. And, and if that's where someone's getting their primary source of joy, like go for it. You know, you can use your mindset a lot and make a lot of improvement, but if someone in particular is really not feeling well or sick, like I was, I don't want them to be just struggling for the next five, 10 years trying to figure out what it is when the research is strikingly clear. Mitochondrial dysfunction is the root of these chronic, often inexplicable diseases and issues that people are having today. It, mitochondrial dysfunction in those rel relative uh, respective tissues, I should say, where those issues are occurring, whether it's depression, anxiety, chronic fatigue, heart disease, Alzheimer's, diabetes, obesity, cancer, and whatnot. Um, these are all mitochondrial dysfunction in those tissues. And it all goes back to this similar root cause. Now, there's always other factors that can be involved, but generally, this is, is a widespread epidemic because of the way we're living. We're chronically all disrupting these systems. So it's really good for people to know, to know these things. So again, people who want to keep doing what they're doing, keep doing what you're doing. And if you're feeling great and having fun, keep doing that. Definitely. But if someone's sick and has problems, that's the thing. Those are, these are the people who, who I want to be able to at least have heard this information so that there's a, you know, they're on the path to be able to improve themselves. Absolutely. I find the same to be true, Matt, is you have to explain to people what optimal would be and what that would look like. And then they decide for themselves where they find their balance and, and really figure out based on their lifestyle, what they can implement and how good they can do. But it's not serving anyone to say, Hey, you should stay up later because that's how life is these days. It is good to give them the, the idea of what would be ideal in a perfect world. And then they can come as close to it as they can. And I personally find with a lot of people I work with and myself going to bed earlier does improve your sleep quality, but also your productivity because you get so much more done in the morning hours. It's more peaceful and very few people actually spend their, their nights doing things that are productive or that actually enhance their lives. You know, sometimes sure you spend time with friends and loved ones. That's, that's of course very, very important, but I find the vast majority of people are just staying up late, watching TV, binging on Netflix, surfing the internet or social media. And when they cut that out and get to bed earlier, many, many factors of their health and their overall life just start to improve because they're better allocating their time. They're getting more restorative rest. All of these things really come into play. Yeah, absolutely. There's a few things you've got me thinking about that I'd love to just touch on a, a little bit. For example, one um, piece of really important information that I, I love to share is that, you know, just so people understand, people have these, let's say what you mentioned as obligations or this or that, you know, anything that we have in our life is chosen ultimately. Like we'll say, oh, you know, I don't have a choice. I have to do this. I have to do that. But, but really we all, we, we know that it's, it's still a choice we're making. Like, for example, um, we, when we were hunter gatherers, let's say way back in the past, like you had a choice, basically, do you want to live or do you want to die? And if you want to live, you have to try to, you know, stick with the tribe, hunt your own food, fish and, and survive and everything. If you, if you want to die, then you just don't, have to do, don't do anything. You'll, you'll pretty much just die. But, um, but today, so like we're already gifted with in many ways with not having to worry about 
dying. Cause even if someone fails, there's often like social nets and whatnot that at least hold people not very well, but especially in European countries, like you can just basically do nothing and the government will basically take care of you. So like, we don't have to worry about dying per se. It's just kind of a choice. Like how great, how great do we want to make our lives? Like mediocre, better, amazing, you know? So like people have choices. If, if you hate your job, like people say, I have to stick with it because it's all I got. But like, it's really not. If you just, for example, like you said, if you want to spend those four hours you spend watching, you know, Game of Thrones every day, reading books, then you could get a better job, make more money and work less. It's just like, it's, it's a choice of how you spend your time. There's lots of hours in the day to do lots of stuff. So for example, what I say is like, when people say, Oh, I have a job, I can't do this. I can't get outside. I'm stuck in artificial light all day. Um, in which case it's critical to protect the eyes and so on and the skin also from this light. Um, but I'd say like, why would someone spend 50 weeks or 48 weeks of the year dying to spend four weeks of the year living? Like it doesn't really make sense. You know what I mean? We know that that lifestyle of the, of the nine to five desk job is harmful and toxic. And, and obviously it's inconvenient because that's like the core of our economy in the United States in many ways. But the research is indicating that it's not good and hopefully we'll be able to make big changes to those industries and those companies and office buildings and whatnot so that these people can not suffer the health consequences associated with that lifestyle. But until then, it is toxic. And so a core part of this message, as like you said, explaining what is optimal, being in that lifestyle is not optimal. But the cool thing is that it's not a curse. Like there are so many people today, mothers, fathers, people with kids, you know, young people like me who were 18 years old when they started this, who no one can argue, I can't do this if an 18 year old can start his own business and travel the world. Sure, I don't have the encumbrances. So of course, if, some, if someone has kids, then you have to be a, more, a little more conservative because you know you have kids to take care of. Obviously, you know, I get it. In, in those cases, I don't fully understand what it's like, but you know what I'm saying? So, but it's just, it's just something to consider. People can do this and people are doing it. And uh, look up the four hour work week by Tim Ferriss, great book talking about how people can sort of extricate themselves to a remote working situation or start your own, your own business or your own thing. Like it's not that hard to do and it's definitely not impossible. That's one thing. Um, another thing is like, yeah, I'm not perfect either. You know, as far as saying what's optimal, this is just what I've learned. Do I follow everything always to the T? Not necessarily. I usually pretty much always wear my blue blocking glasses after sunset, but there have been nights where I went out with some friends, like, you know, a place where we were dancing, having a drink or so. And I was actually concerned what people thought about me. So I wasn't wearing the glasses, but then I got over the insanity and I was like, wait a minute, this is like, I know what I'm doing, why am I concerned about what's in other people's heads that has really no effect on me? But anyway, so like there's that. Like, for example, another thing is with the light diet, because it's focused on the engines, it's not about the food. Yes, eating a healthy seasonal seafood based paleo style diet based on healthy seafood, meats, healthy fats, some vegetables and fruits as they're available seasonally and that kind of thing is is I think the best way to go about this tons of, you know, super nutrient dense, like dense seafood, maybe some organ meats, stews, soups when it's appropriate. Um, that kind of thing is great. But for example, like I had some, like a couple scoops of ice cream just before we got on the podcast. Right. And I'm not like, Oh my God, Oh my God, I had ice cream because I would have been if I was still stuck in like the paleo diet, diet is everything mindset. But now I know that literally that's just fuel that's coming in. 
and I'm doing so much good stuff. I'm in the sun a lot. I'm in the sea a lot. I'm exercising. I can just burn right through that. Is it as good as if I had some fresh fruit? Not necessarily, but is it that bad? Not based on what I've been learning. Again, some diet guru will tell you that's the worst thing ever. They had some sugar, some ice cream, something like this. To me, that's actually a really enjoyable part of enjoying my life and my travels in different places. And I still feel fantastic because of the things I'm doing. When I was only focused on diet, just having something suboptimal from food, because that was all the only way I believed I could affect my physiology. I was, it was like knocked out. I was like, oh my gosh, I messed up. I feel so bad. It was terrible. But now I know that that's really not the key. There's tons of people who live super long, healthy lives, not eating even the healthiest optimal paleo diets. They eat bread. They live till 100, 110, 120 years old, some people. It's clearly not all about food. It's more about our environment and the way we're living. So that's really cool. And um, the third thing on that note, super simple, is there studies done actually in San Diego where you're from at the Salk Institute uh, by a guy named Sachin Panda, who basically showed that mice eating, eating healthy food at the wrong time of day were, I should say, no, no, eating, um, mice eating healthy food at the wrong time of day had more health problems than mice that were eating unhealthy food at the right time of day. And let me explain just what I mean by that a little more. As an organism, we're, we have a time when our engines, based on our environment, are, are turning on and functioning and ready to burn through whatever we're throwing at them. That's basically from the late morning to the middle of the day is when our mitochondria and metabolism is sort of most active around the middle of the day, early afternoon even. Um, and then we have the evening when melatonin levels are increasing, when the mitochondria, mitochondrial function is calming down because we're getting ready to sleep and repair. And so basically what the study showed is that if, if someone eats a drinks, let's say like a Coca-Cola or eats ice cream in the middle of the day when the sun is stronger, and even if it's winter, forget it, it doesn't matter. The, the metabolism is more active at that time versus eating a salad late in the evening. That salad is significantly worse for health. And this sounds crazy, but this is like a, a very distinguished researcher, peer-reviewed controlled studies and everything. And the results were clear. The animals that were eating the, the healthy food at the wrong time of the day when their mitochondria were no longer active to burn through it were much worse off than the animals eating the bad food at the right time of the day. Because again, it's not about the fuel, it's about the engine. And so it's just like in your car, if you, it's kind of like if you're eating good food, but the engine's basically not running at all, it's going to go in there and it's going to be like basically tar and it's not going to be burned through at all and it's going to clog everything up and it's going to slow everything down. And it's not going to be good. But if you put it in when the engine's running full, full force, all the pistons are firing like crazy, you'll burn right through it even if it's not optimal. Now, the car analogy doesn't fit quite as well with this one, but the science is clear. And that's really important for people to know. That means eating after 5 p.m. is how you get fat. So basically, if and not, you know, if you're healthy, you have a good metabolism, especially if you're young, you can handle it. But if, if, if someone wanted a prescription on how to get fat, I would just say eat a lot of food after 5 p.m. in the afternoon and expose yourself to a lot of artificial light while you're doing it. And you will absolutely gain weight very quickly and never, ever, ever get morning sunlight exposure to tune your hormones, get your metabolism fired up and, and burning through your calories and your fat stores and everything. Super, super simple. 
I love, I love, love that you touched on this, Matt, because it's so important. Uh, all three points you made just to, to bring up some of the earlier ones is it's important for people to understand you don't have to be perfect. You just have to do the best you can and make it a priority because we all have the choice in how we live our lives when we go to sleep, when we eat, what we eat, how we exercise, how our environment is. And it's important to understand that it really comes down to you and your priorities and not trying to be perfect at everything and freaking out over the littlest, littlest things you do wrong, but rather just doing your best and living as, as close as you can in, in tune with nature. And it's terms of the meal timing. I'm actually gonna have an episode coming out soon about intermittent fasting and the best times to eat. And I've been preaching this for years that to reap the benefits of intermittent fasting, skipping breakfast is not the best strategy, but rather having a really early dinner and then not having anything to eat or drink except maybe water for several hours before bed is really how you get the, the best bang for your buck and how, yeah, Dr. Sachin Panda's uh, circadian research on meal timing and all that stuff is so important. I've seen it firsthand in my practice, how that affects people is having that early dinner at four or 5 PM rather than the more uh, common time of eating dinner, which is really late in the evening at seven or eight or it's heck even really nine. Not good. Yeah, it's really not good. I mean, it's a huge issue and it almost defeats the purpose of fasting. I mean, it's still actually like anyone who's taking the effort to fast is going to be probably healthier off just because they're letting their body at least recover in the morning hours and be free of just being bombarded with food. Because like, you know, the average person, let's say they're eating their breakfast early and then they're eating another meal and another meal late at night and maybe even a late, late, late night snack. So that's, so then, you know, if you're going from that to fasting, then you might be making a slight improvement, but, but it's just like, it's a shame that, you know, people who are putting in all this effort could be having so much stronger results if they just added in sunlight and, uh, you know, basically stopped eating after 5 PM. And then, yeah. And then, you know, maybe for example, if you have breakfast at 10 or 11, you know, something like that, which is not, I mean, for me, that's easy. Like my normal inclination is to have a breakfast a little later in the morning after I spent time in the sun and the ocean. And then my last meal, four or five, that's like two meals in a day. I'm just naturally falling within like an eight, 16 fast uh, window. Although there also is some evidence for people who have circadian disruption that it's really, really beneficial to eat a breakfast actually shortly after the sun comes up because in addition to light, uh, eating food is a huge, they call it a Zeitgeber, like it's a time giver in German, but that's the term they use in the scientific literature, a time, a time setter um, for our body. So just eating a breakfast sets our clock also. Um, so does exercise. Although again, there's some evidence to indicate that doing early morning exercise when you have circadian disruption is maybe not the best thing because it can be stressful for the body, particularly if the body's hormones are all off and everything. It can be really a big stress. Um, so that's why one of my mentors recommends using the, just a meal after breakfast. But again, if you want to fast, you, let's say you have breakfast 7 a.m., 8 a.m. approximately, then eat your last meal 2, 3 in the afternoon. And again, if you're in the sun in particular, that's, that's going to be enough. Like you're not going to need food. And once it gets dark, the goal should be, I'm going to go to sleep. So like if you're hungry a little bit, you go to sleep, you wake up and you'll feel great. It's really awesome. Oh, I'm, I'm right there with you. I completely agree, Matt. Well, we've shared some awesome information here today. I really appreciate you coming on the show. And one last thing I do want to uh, tell the audience about is to check out raw optics, blue light blocking glasses, because I'll tell you what guys, when I first started wearing blue blockers, I got these 
horrible looking safety goggle type glasses on Amazon and talk about embarrassing to wear out in public. These things looked ridiculous. And now companies like Matt's, like Raw Optics are making really stylish, high quality lens blue blockers that you know, I'll wear out to the store in the evening if I need to run to get something. And I don't feel embarrassed at all. I feel like, yeah, these are actually pretty good looking glasses while they're protecting your eyes and helping with your circadian biology. So definitely check those out. It's awesome. Yeah. I appreciate you uh, sending the plug. Like I'll be out just walking around. Like let's say I'm at a, like a, a party or something. Again, I don't go out late usually doing like partying or anything like this, but girls will use that to hit on me. Like, cause the glasses actually, they're pretty cool. And you know, if someone's interested in you and you're wearing something unique, it's like the conversation piece. It's always really fun. So these blue blocking glasses are actually picking up a lot of steam. And if this, again, for people who are interested in this stuff, it's, it's a big, big win to, to be, um, you know, confident again, once you learn about it, you're interested, it's huge, great conversation starter to pass the great knowledge along. So do with this, what you wish, uh, anyone who's heard this, uh, you know, reach out to me. The light diet is my Instagram handle. So, uh, hit me up. If you got any questions, I'd love to chat and connect. I found a similar thing with the blue light blocking glasses, Matt. They are a nice conversation starter. Is there anywhere else people could find you besides Instagram at the light diet? Yeah, I would just say, um, I would just say the light diet on Instagram is the best place to go for now. Raw optics, the, the blue light blocking glasses company. And then on the Instagram, I'll post, you know, uh, if I start making some more YouTube videos or something like that, informational content that I've kind of have, up my sleeve. Great. Anyone who's hearing this who might be around London. I'm speaking at an event in London on the 14th of September coming up shortly health optimization summit. So it'll be really interesting. Um, so yeah, just there's the word. Anyway, awesome. I I, this is great for anyone who listens. Yeah. Great chat with you, Matt. Epic. Great chat with you too, Ryan. Thanks for listening in. You can find the show notes and resources at thrivingwellness.co slash podcast. We encourage you to share your biggest takeaways with us on social media and share the show with your friends and family. If you found this episode valuable, leave us a five-star review. Your feedback helps to support us on our mission to positively impact as many people as we can with this information. Join us for our next episodes where we will be interviewing leading wellness professionals to inspire you in your health journey. Until next time.